From WNYC in New York, this is On the Media. I'm Bob Garfield. And I'm Brooke Gladstone. This just in. Well, actually, it was last week that the excruciatingly nonpartisan website PolitiFact announced its 2017 Lie of the Year. This Russia thing with Trump and Russia is a made-up story. It's an excuse by the Democrats for having lost an election that they should have won. It's what the website calls a pants-on-fire lie, one that rejects heaps of evidence, such as Russia's theft of private data, its targeted placement of deceptive political ads, its armies of online bots and trolls, the release by WikiLeaks of Democratic National Committee documents snatched by what most experts believe were Russian hackers, the reluctant admission by Facebook, Google, and Twitter that yes, Russia did use their platforms to influence the election. And of course, the confessions of Trump campaign officials to lying to the FBI about contacts with highly placed Russians. Not proof of collusion, but certainly evidence of Russian attempts to meddle. PolitiFact singled out this particular lie for the honor because the stakes are so high. Denial of the truth, it said, makes it all the more difficult to address the problem. And so Trump says he's fully cooperating with ongoing investigations while dismissing it all as a hoax. Fantastic. As former U.S. Ambassador to NATO Nicholas Burns testified to Congress this past summer. I've worked for both parties. It's inconceivable to me that any of President Trump's predecessors would deny the gravity of such an open attack on our democratic system. I don't believe any previous American president would argue that your own hearings in the Senate are a waste of time. But then, no previous president was so obsessed with the media, or had so much media with which to be obsessed, especially cable TV news, most especially Fox News. The stench coming out of the Justice Department and the FBI is like that of a third world country where money and bullies and clubs decide elections. Fox talk show host and Trump buddy Janine Pirro, a former judge and prosecutor, is talking about anti-Trump texts written while he was still a candidate by an FBI investigator who was speedily dropped from special counsel Robert Mueller's ongoing Russia investigation when they were discovered. Not good enough. There is a cleansing needed in our FBI and Department of Justice. It needs to be cleansed of individuals who should not just be fired, but who need to be taken out in handcuffs. It's an anti-Mueller, anti-FBI feedback loop, claiming that Mueller's probe is hopelessly biased and downright corrupt. CNN's Brian Stelter is alluding there to the power of Fox News, a point underscored by the website Mediaite this week when it posted this year's list of the most influential in media. Rachel Maddow was number five, Matt Drudge, four, Sean Hannity, three, CNN chief Jeff Zucker, two, and number one... Fox and Friends starts right now. Mediaite wrote that, quote, 
The President of the United States regularly starts his day watching Fox and Friends and then tweets about whatever they cover. That alone makes Steve Ducey, Brian Kilmeade, and Ainsley Earhart three of the most influential media people, not just in the United States, but in the entire world. Uh, The President (laughs) of the United States has taken on the FBI. Steve Ducey. It was revealed that, uh, remember Robert Mueller, who is the special counsel, he has uh, had the reputation of stalking his uh, team of attorneys with a bunch of people who love Hillary Clinton. Well, as it turns out, uh, they had to essentially fire from the special counsel investigation a fellow by the name of Peter Stroke. He was an FBI agent, and as it turns out, he's a Trump hater. Meanwhile, the chorus of democratic anxiety and mainstream media excitation grows more intense. Do you worry that they're trying to shut down the investigation by year's end to lay the foundation for Donald Trump to fire Bob Mueller? That's exactly what I'm worried about. Representative Adam Schiff this week. I think this is a concerted effort to deprive the country of getting to the bottom of what the Russians did and what help they may have had from the Trump campaign. Senator Mark Warner this week. Any attempt by this president to remove special counsel Mueller from his position or shut down the investigation would be a gross abuse of power and a flagrant violation of executive branch responsibilities and authorities. Senator Richard Blumenthal. It would provoke an uprising, an outcry, and outrage in the American people and in this chamber. But the time to make that fact clear is now. I want to be very clear and make sure that I address Senator Warner's concern for the 1,000th time. White House Press Secretary Sarah Huckabee Sanders. We have no intentions of firing Bob Mueller. We're continuing to work closely and cooperate with him. We look forward to seeing this hoax wrap up very soon. Did she just say hoax? Pants on fire. There was a Chicago Tribune columnist, and the headline was, Trump insists he won't fire Mueller. I don't believe it. That's the attitude of the press. Howard Kurtz hosts Fox's Media Buzz. Journalists, pundits, commentators, they're saying, no, no, he could do it. You wait, and therefore we need to talk about it. What if? But right now, it's a hypothetical. It's a hypothetical that the president himself and people on his behalf have denied, and yet that doesn't seem to be slowing down the media narrative. PolitiFact said that, quote, it's not so much that Trump trades in falsehoods. It's more that he tries to create a different version of reality simply by asserting it. Listen to Trump. The real story isn't about a firing, but about a hoax. His hoax. That the FBI, the Justice Department, the court, the Congress, the free press are a joke. And he's the joker who won. That's a fact. A couple of weeks ago, CNN announced that it had come across the story that could finally blow the Trump-Russia collusion story wide open. CNN has exclusive new details about a message sent in the final stretch of the 2016 campaign offering access to hacked WikiLeaks documents. This email on September 4th, 2016 was sent to Donald Trump, Donald Trump Jr., and others in the Trump organization. Get that? According to CNN, a man emailed Donald Trump Jr. offering access to hacked WikiLeaks documents on September 4th, 
which is important because that's nine days before the documents were publicly posted online on September 13th. This seemed to be the smoking gun of a conspiracy. This email would be as if someone contacted you and told you they had robbed a bank and gave you the location of the storage locker where they had stashed the money and gave you the combination for the lock on the door. The story quickly spread with CBS News saying that it had confirmed the date of the email with its own source, and outlets like MSNBC fanned its flames as well. And no wonder. If the question was, what did the Trump people know and when did they know it? This story said September 4th, again, nine days before the leak. Except, as the Washington Post discovered, The email wasn't sent on September 4th, but September 14th, the day after the leak. No forewarning, no evidence of complicity, no nothing. To commentator Glenn Greenwald, co-founding editor of The Intercept, the episode is itself a smoking gun. Of media in such a frenzy to get the goods on Donald Trump that we will violate basic principles of journalism and fulfill the worst suspicions of a public constantly told we are the enemy. There are two aspects of this. One is that this is just the latest and in a very long line of serious mistakes, making the Trump-Russia connection as inflammatory as possible, only to fall apart upon minimal scrutiny. The second thing is the lack of accountability. CNN and others corrected their story or apologized for it, but with very little fanfare. If you look at the way in which they presented the story when they thought that they had what you correctly described as what would have been a smoking gun, they were acting as though it was the biggest revelation since Watergate. A CNN exclusive, a newly discovered email shows an effort to give the Trump campaign hacked documents from WikiLeaks. Did the president know? And then when they had to go and correct the story, it was very muted. We now learn that this uh, email was on September 14th. So that is 10 days uh, later than what we originally reported earlier today. And it appears to change the understanding of this story. No explanation at all as to how they got the story so gravely wrong, which means they're refusing to provide the kind of accountability and transparency that media outlets routinely demand of others. Now, in your piece on this subject, you had a pretty interesting idea. It is another journalistic principle that says that when a reporter strikes an anonymity deal with a source, if the source turns out to be lying, the deal is null and void because the information transaction was based on fraud. And we saw an example of it in the Project Veritas story that the Washington Post did where these right-wingers were trying to sting the Post into printing a fake story And when the Post realized what was happening, they turned the tables on the stingers and used their names, faces, and so forth to say what had happened. You suggest that CNN do the very same thing with its source on the WikiLeaks story. Does that pertain really in this instance? I'm having a very hard time envisioning how it is that what CNN itself calls multiple sources with access to this email all misread the same date in the same way, absent the deliberate intention of having CNN misreport the story to the public, in which case CNN has the duty to expose who these people are 
Or CNN ought to explain to the public, no, it wasn't deliberate. It was in good faith. And here's what actually happened. Part of the interesting issue, people cheered the Washington Post when they exposed the source who was deceiving them because she was sort of this nobody in Washington that had no power and never fed any news outlets, any stories. Whereas the people that CNN are protecting for right or for wrong are very powerful people who feed them stories often and probably will again in the future. And I think that's one of the dynamics at play here. Now, I would say that the media as a group, most supported by some great reporting, do believe that there was and is something rotten in Trump Tower, which is not the same thing as bias. It's judgment based on a lot of gathering evidence. Just to be clear, you don't have a beef with journalists journalizing their asses off, right? I'm all in favor of journalists being highly adversarial to those who wield political power, but you can't be so eager to bring down people in power that you throw journalistic standard and caution to the wind because that is when you become unreliable activists rather than journalists. And now you mentioned that the list of bad stories is growing. Can you give me some examples of stories that appeared to be blockbusters which fizzled out very quickly? In the week before the story that we're talking about, ABC ended up suspending its star reporter, Brian Ross, because he had reported inaccurately that Donald Trump had told Michael Flynn, while Trump was a candidate, to make contact with the Russians. And as it turned out, that instruction was given when Trump had already won the election. Similarly, Bloomberg and the Wall Street Journal both had to retract stories saying that Robert Mueller had issued a subpoena to Deutsche Bank for the personal banking records of Donald Trump, which would have been a huge story as well, that turned out to be false. The Washington Post reported that the Russians had hacked into the American electric grid in order to threaten heat for Americans during the winter that turned out to be totally false. There's been a lot of examples like that that I think have really damaged the credibility of the media and created this opening for Trump to try and discredit journalism generally by calling the American media fake news. It seems to me that, by and large, the newspapers like the New York Times and the Washington Post and the Associated Press and USA Today on the real estate stuff and Wall Street Journal and so forth have been pretty scrupulous and haven't had to walk back many stories. Whereas cable news and the broadcast networks are frequently in that position. Do you see a significant difference in journalistic success when it comes to the Trump-Russia story? I would quibble a little bit with the premise of the question, only in that I think some of the most serious retractions have come from the Washington Post early on. But I do agree, certainly, that the overwhelming majority of the retractions and the false stories and the spreading of misinformation come from cable news outlets like CNN, MSNBC, and Fox. And I think a major reason for that is the business model. Unlike the Washington Post and the New York Times, which have readers that kind of span the ideological spectrum, cable outlets have audiences that expect a certain agenda to be advanced. That's the reason they're watching. And I think that leads to an abandonment of journalistic accuracy because that serves the business model more than adhering to journalistic standards. And I consider that to be a huge problem given the prominence of cable news today. It's one thing when politicians throw red meat to the base. It's another thing when nominal news organizations are doing the same thing. Exactly. All right, there's one thing we have to address, and that is 
the Glenn Greenwald question. You've spent a good part of the year lashing out at the media for the very stories that we've discussed. And there is some speculation that you yourself have skewed your view to accommodate your general skepticism on the story. I just want to be clear, your anger in this particular case is not about the essence of that story, but merely in the errors that have been made and the lack of accountability for them that we've seen over the last number of months. Precisely. My view has never been that Putin wouldn't do anything like this, that Russia didn't interfere in our politics. My view has been very simple, which is that as journalists and as citizens, we ought to have learned the lesson by now that we need to see evidence when it comes to inflammatory claims by the government about other governments. Donald Trump has obviously launched a sustained campaign to really destroy the credibility of journalism because he doesn't want a check of a free press on him. The reason he perceives that to be a potent attack is because confidence and faith in the American media has in fact collapsed. And journalists are very good at expressing anger and indignation that the president would dare attack journalists as fake news and would attack a free press. But they're very bad at asking, why is it that confidence and faith on the part of the public has collapsed in American journalism? Glenn, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Really appreciate it. Glenn Greenwald is a co-founding editor of The Intercept. We contacted CNN, MSNBC, and CBS. CNN and CBS did not respond, and MSNBC declined to comment. Coming up, fighting fire with fire is all well and good until you get burned yourself. This is on the media. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate. Then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. This is On the Media. I'm Brooke Gladstone. And I'm Bob Garfield. Way back in 2014, erupted the controversy called Gamergate an attack on women video game designers and critics of the blatant sexism, objectification, and misogyny that pervades gaming culture. Mobs of gamer bros inundated Reddit, 4chan, and various musty basements of the web to denounce women in the most vile terms. So-called gamergators harass their critics in online posts using language mostly too graphic to show here. Many of the trolls searched the internet, including social media and public databases, to find personal information about the targeted women, this to trigger still more harassment online and in the physical world. Soon the victims, such as game designer Zoe Quinn, were under siege thanks to that thing called doxing. Zoe Quinn found herself at the center of Gamergate. Decca Muldowney wrote recently about doxing for ProPublica. She went into hiding. 
she received really, really, really vicious threats, and she still does three years later. Three years later, that's not all that's taken place. One development is that the Gamergate troll army and various outposts of white nationalism, anti-Semitism, and testosterone-fueled anarchy have coalesced into what is known as the alt-right, the basest of Donald Trump's base. They fancy themselves revolutionaries, and their go-to weapon is doxing, such as when Milo Yiannopoulos egged supporters on to report suspected undocumented immigrants to ICE, or when alt-right vandal Mike Cernovich encouraged his followers to harass a CNN reporter at his home, or when Andrew Anglin, the founder of the Daily Stormer, incited fellow Nazis to terrorize a Jewish Montana woman who was in a legal dispute with the mother of white supremacist Richard Spencer. Anglin's website issues a so-called call to arms, publishing Tanya's email, cell, and information about her family and children. If you've ever experienced fear to the point where you're frozen, I, that's a really good way to describe it. Anglin going so far as to suggest his followers seek the Gersh family out, writing on the Daily Stormer, if you're in the area, maybe you should stop by and tell her in person what you think of her actions. That's one development. The other development is that their weapon has been turned against them. Jews will not replace us! Jews will not replace us! When Nazis in khakis marched in Charlottesville in August, brandishing tiki torches and hate slogans until the whole ugly scene devolved into violence, they were notably not wearing white hoods or balaclavas. This made them vulnerable to identification, and identified some were. Cole White and Peter Teft were both outed online. Since then, White left his job at a California hot dog shop, and Teft's own father publicly disowned him, denouncing his son's vile, hateful, and racist rhetoric and actions. People lost jobs, friends, and respect. And the schadenfreude was palpable. The likes of actress Jennifer Lawrence encouraged fans to dox the deplorables because, as ProPublica's Decca Muldowney observes, the targets weren't just ideological adversaries, they were culprits. Yeah, and it was done by some pretty high-profile people. Sean King, who's now at The Intercept and is a journalist and commentator, was among those who encouraged a public doxing via Twitter. And he, in general, had a lot of support from liberals. And a lot of people were taking part in this kind of crowdsourced docs that he began. And the argument there was, look, these people actually broke the law. They committed acts of violence, and we identify them, and then we pass those details on to the police. Unfortunately, as they say, mistakes were made. This was a high-profile example of a bad dox after Charlottesville. A man was marching in the Charlottesville rally who was wearing an Arkansas engineering sweatshirt. So people immediately started going through the faculty lists and students who attended the engineering department in Arkansas. And they came across this poor man, Kyle Quinn. He had a beard and he kind of resembled this guy who was in these pictures from Charlottesville. And so they said Carl Quinn was in Charlottesville. He and his family had to flee. They had to go into hiding. And then later this man comes out of the woodwork called Andrew M. Dodson. And it turns out he's actually the guy who was there. I just wonder about this whole double standard that people on the left are appalled by doxing, consider it harassment and vandalism when it's 
being done by Mike Cernovich or his troll army, and are not so righteously indignant when it is aimed at right-wingers. I'm thinking particularly right now about a video that showed a family all dressed up in American flag-themed clothing calling a five-year-old of Palestinian descent a terrorist and having it all caught on video. You guys are terrorists. Get out of here. If you hate America so much, leave. I don't hate America. I just hate like you. Oh, okay. I love my people. Yeah, this happened after... Trump declared Jerusalem the capital of Israel, and a lot of people were taking to the streets, and this Palestinian-American family were protesting, and they got into this altercation with three Trump supporters. Now, again, these people who were garishly bedecked in this jingoistic outfit and using their free speech as hate speech, calling a little girl a terrorist. They also say some other incredibly unpleasant things. Which quickly went viral as the anti-Trump protesters asked netizens to identify their antagonists and make their lives hell. It actually followed very much the same formula as many right-wing doxes of people on the left follow. So it used social media to identify the two women who were involved in the altercation. It turns out one of them is a social worker. They were writing emails to her employer. One of them is a student. They were writing emails to her university saying, you should know that this student has said things that go against your code of conduct. Do you really want someone to be working as a social worker who would say these things to a child in the street? Yeah, wherever you stand politically, it is no fun getting doxxed. Ellie Mastal is a lawyer, commentator, and also legal editor for WNYC's More Perfect. He lived it recently after publishing a blog post, inflammatory on its face, calling for black jurors to acquit all defendants when the crime victim is white. Breitbart got a hold of it and somehow managed to make Mastal's position even more racially antagonistic, and it was game on. When you write that kind of piece, you expect the heat to go to 10, and then they did something that made it go to 11. And what did 11 look like? There's just people screaming at you from every possible line of communication and getting kind of like increasingly threatening and violent. Now, I used to park at the same parking spot every day when I came into my office. As this was happening, I went to park and some guy popped out of the parking garage took a picture of my license plate, and ran away. And, you know, that was a bit scary. Um, I, didn't, I didn't appreciate that at all. Yet, having himself been terrorized, Mistal is not morally opposed to doxing itself. The lawyer whose answer to structural racial injustice for African Americans is to inflict the same injustice upon whites also believes that the dox mob brings a punishment for depraved behavior that the mere law cannot. What doxing does is bring back some mechanism of social penalty. Obviously, I'm not in favor or a fan of or condone actual violence. Obviously, I'm not in favor or a fan of or condone actual threats. Having experienced some, you don't need to threaten somebody's life. But what doxing potentially does is make people think twice before they decide to act a fool in public. 
I asked him if he would dox, knowing full well that his racist target would be terrorized out of his very home. I wouldn't do it. Pull out my phone, get the YouTube video, put it on my website. Yeah, I'm not, it's not, that's not me. If my buddy did it, right? (laughs) And all I had to do was look the other way, I'm probably looking the other way. I think there are a whole bunch of people who, like me, would not dox somebody, but also, like me, would not lift a finger to stop it. Another proponent, one who is not a mere cheerleader, is a woman known online as Fallon. She's a Tennessee mom, nonprofit healthcare administrator, and Antifa militant. Fallon is an inveterate doxer who made news when she outed the head of the Wisconsin chapter of the National Socialist Movement, as in Nazi. His name is Corey Clippo. Um, he was planning a fascist barbecue. This is not your run-of-the-mill Trump supporter. This is not somebody who is just your red hat, make America great again person. This is a white nationalist. This is a neo-Nazi. What exactly did you locate about him in post to dime him out? His employer. So we were able to derive his employer from some of his social media. A lot of times that's where we find a lot of this information. There is no peaceful white nationalism. It is a violent cause. They are as dangerous to a community as a sex offender. To us, this is like a sex offender registry. So what we do is we collaborate with local teams. We have them post flyers about this person, letting their community know this person is organizing on a neo-Nazi scale and that they live in your community. And he was the head of the state chapter of Wisconsin. And I was really pleased at his response when he was outed to his community as a Nazi because he actually did the ethical thing. He dismantled his chapter, he stopped organizing, and he canceled his event. So that was really satisfying. Because the scales had fallen from his eyes about the nature of what he was up to, or he just didn't want to be victimized by the consequences of his own activism? He was afraid that he was going to lose his job. He was afraid that his community was going to look at him as a threat. He wanted to minimize the damage. I don't think it changed his mind about anything he was doing, but he chose not to organize. And that is fine with me. I want you to stop being a Nazi. That's what I want. Fallon says that doxing is a digital brick through a window. And she should know because she herself has been doxed by her own Antifa confederates who suspected a traitor or spy in their midst. The world now knows that Fallon is Jessica Nacera. Yes. What was that like? Well, it was obviously a very scary thing. And I had prepared myself to be doxxed by the far right. I was ready for that. I hadn't anticipated that I would get doxxed by a relatively small collective of leftists. I took appropriate precautions. I did have some fallout because obviously it's not just the left who's watching these kind of things. It's, it's the right, too. I was subjected to a lot of alt-right doxing. They were placing personal ads on different media mainly calls for surprise rape encounters and things like that. I'm mostly beyond the pain of that experience. I'm grateful for the folks who carried me through. I still believe in doxing as a tool in the wheelhouse of anti-fascists. I believe that we can use it ethically and that it's effective. And 
obviously the right's not going to stop. They're not going to stop doxing leftists. They're not going to stop doxing people of color, people who are queer or who are from a variety of minority communities. And so it's a tool, I think, that we're going to have to continue using. I think that the people who are fascists and they're organizing, they should be afraid of people like me because we mean business. We're not going to allow this to happen in our country. Anti-fascism. Well, that's a just cause. And I suppose if ever the ends justified the means, that would be the acid test. But at the same time, vigilantism is antithetical to the rule of law. When is justice ever served by a mob? If your answer was never, please consider an example raised by lawyer Ellie Mastal. Yeah, look what's happening with the Weinstein stuff, right? All these powerful men are losing their jobs, not because they've in any kind of court of law been proven to be guilty. Decades, centuries of intractable, entrenched harassment, discrimination, and impunity, untouched by law or due process or even the Ten Commandments, suddenly unraveling under the demands of irate citizens and the transit of property of shame. Men are losing their jobs and reputations virtually overnight based on testimony that might not even be admissible in court. Yes, there may be some innocent bystanders caught in the crossfire, but it is also, at last, a great reckoning for centuries of danger and degradation. Is it morally defensible to trust the mob, trust the street, to figure out who gets to keep their job and who doesn't? I'm not losing sleep over Harvey Weinstein. I'm just, I'm just not. Well, hashtag me neither. Coming up... In Hollywood, sometimes the truth-tellers are heroes, but sometimes it's the liars. This is On The Media. On The Media is brought to you by Zbiotics. Tired of wasting a day on the couch because of a few drinks the night before? Zbiotics Pre-Alcohol Probiotic is here to help. Zbiotics is the world's first genetically engineered probiotic invented by scientists to feel like your normal self the morning after drinking. Zbiotics breaks down the byproduct of alcohol, which is responsible for rough mornings after. Go to zbiotics.com/otm to get 15% off your first order when you use OTM at checkout. Zbiotics is backed with 100% money back guarantee, so if you're unsatisfied for any reason, they'll refund your money no questions asked. That's zbiotics.com slash OTM, and use the code OTM at checkout for 15% off. Since WNYC's first broadcast in 1924, we've been dedicated to creating the kind of content we know the world needs. Since then, New York Public Radio's rigorous journalism has gone on to win a Peabody Award and a DuPont Columbia Award, among others. In addition to this award-winning reporting, your sponsorship also supports inspiring storytelling and extraordinary music that is free and accessible to all. To get in touch and find out more, visit sponsorship.wnyc.org. This is On the Media. I'm Brooke Gladstone. And I'm Bob Garfield. In this hour, we are addressing the quandaries posed when bedrock ethical, moral, and professional principles push up against one another. For another example, consider the city of Detroit 
which we're often told is the quintessential crime-ridden post-apocalyptic hellhole. We travel to Detroit, where residents refuse to abandon a city blighted by unemployment and crime. A common media narrative in Detroit is praise for the recent influx of brave urban pioneers with their restoration hardware credit cards gentrifying the city back into solvency. Evan Hansen and a partner purchased an old Midtown Detroit abandoned building and turned it into a restaurant more than a year ago. Frustrated with both the depressing depictions of blight and stories dominated by the new residents, Mayor Mike Duggan hired a team of storytellers to feature neighborhoods and communities in Detroit that are often overlooked in mainstream media. But wait, aren't we supposed to be suspicious, very suspicious, when the government tells its version of the story? Aaron Foley is the chief storyteller for the city of Detroit, and he says there are always two narratives. It's either a city on the rise, thanks to all the millennials moving from New York, or it's a city on the decline thanks to all of the factories that have been closing since the 1940s. One thing that a lot of people don't understand is just how big Detroit is. It's about 140 square miles. A lot of media attention is focused on downtown, midtown, trendy neighborhoods. But then you have about 133 square miles left where the stories aren't being told. The glue that holds Detroit together, the community organizations, the block clubs, the churches, the rec centers, places that make Detroit Detroit, don't get the same shine that a new person who has recently moved to Detroit will get. We latch on to whatever's hot. I'm curious to know what you suppose is going on in newsrooms that leads them to repeat the same tired tropes about the city of Detroit. Is it laziness? Is it disinterest, latent racism. What's going on? Maybe a little bit from each bucket. One thing that's definitely hit a lot of our local newsrooms is the decimation of talent through layoffs. You have a lack of institutional knowledge among those who remain. You also see a lot of reporters who may not be as familiar with Detroit as someone who has been born and raised here. And for what it's worth, your shop, I think you have six people you work with who uh, everyone's a person of color. Exactly. That was intentional because I wanted people who were plugged into Detroit and I wanted people that looked like Detroit. All right. I'm looking at a list of some of the stories that you and your fellow storytellers are telling. One is equity, diversity, and inclusion, the foundation of Shakespeare in Detroit, vacant Bangletown school to be converted into affordable housing, a lot of soul in this hole in the wall in Northwest Detroit, are you Detroit's best home cook? All right, the Pentagon Papers, it isn't. This is right. <laughs> quintessentially soft feature stuff. I want to fight back against the soft feature stuff a little bit because I wanted to build our audience by first setting ourselves apart. Soul in the Wall, for example, that's a restaurant that will not win a James Beard Award. But... They've been in that space, they've served that neighborhood, and they've got some history in that neighborhood. I wanted something where you could see black people in a city that's 82% black get the same sort of reverence as your titan businessmen in town. All right, now, Chief Storyteller, once again, you are a government employee. Can you tell me why yours isn't just a fancy title for propagandist? Are you to be trusted I mean, I'll be honest, you know, this is the question I've gotten a lot, being, you know, thought of as a propagandist. 
it does sort of bother me because I came from a journalism background. You know, it's not me just throwing away my journalism career just to go work for the mayor. It's continuing what I've been doing. You know, I'm trying to make Detroit a cornerstone of what I do because Detroit made me what I am. Now here's an opportunity to just really, for me, take it to the next level as well as create this platform where Detroiters can be part of something. That editorial independence, is it a guarantee? I have the autonomy over this. Like, I'm not going to the mayor or anybody else and saying, hey, can you go over this? And I would hope that, you know, I've sort of built a little bit of a reputation in Detroit. You know, I have two books. I've been a loudmouth. One of which, by the way, has the magnificent title of How to Live in Detroit Without Being a Jackass. I built myself up to this position, I like to think. And some of the things that I've done before, I'm doing now, which is raising awareness for Black-owned businesses when nobody else would, telling people, you know, how to conduct themselves in Detroit from a Detroiter standpoint. I guarantee you, will come a time where some developer is coming to town and is going to invest a lot of money in a neighborhood that really, really needs it. But you're going to discover that someone's being heavy-handed about the development plans, and it is going to have a really bad effect, let's just say, on some low-income neighborhoods. Will you be able to write that story? We got a lot of people that, that are like me in the mayor's office where we come from some of these neighborhoods, and we don't want to let our own people down. There's a guy in our planning office who says, if we can't do it, then nobody else can But you're right. If the situation comes, I'm going to face a challenge. All right, I want to ask you one more thing. The FBI crime data report places Detroit on a per capita basis as the most violent city in the United States in 2016. It also has the highest housing vacancy rate in the country. A fifth of the homes are empty. So counter-narratives are great so long as they don't obscure other truths. How do you make sure that you, in your accentuation of the positive, don't obscure other truth? First of all, I I can't change that narrative. That's something everyone is aware of. I sort of push back against this notion that I'm only going to cover positive news. We talked about this phenomenon of Cartier sunglasses in the late 60s. People in factories were still making all this money on the line, and a status symbol of wealth were these $2,000 plus Cartier glasses that were very hard to come by in Detroit because you had to be a licensed dealer through Cartier to buy them. Well, the factory wages started going down in the 80s, but then it became a status symbol among gangs and drug dealers. We did a quick write-up of it, how people will either kill for them or maim for these very expensive sunglasses, in addition to a video that we filmed on our own about a young woman who had fake Cartier glasses and they were snatched off. And I was like, you know what? This is a thing in Detroit. Let's talk about it on this platform, how this thing happened, and let's talk about why it's a thing. Aaron, thank you very much. (laughs) Thanks, Bob. Aaron Foley is the chief storyteller for the city of Detroit and the author of two books, How to Live in Detroit Without Being a Jackass and The Detroit Neighborhood Guidebook. Standing for one's principles, as we've heard, can sometimes be a fraught proposition. Sometimes you have to bend your morals. Sometimes you have to risk your livelihood or even your liberty. 
Released this week, The Post, Steven Spielberg's TikTok of how The Washington Post decided to publish the Pentagon Papers, touches on this idea, too. Post publisher Catherine Graham agonizes over whether to defy the government and jeopardize her paper for the sake of the truth. Oh, gosh. Oh, gosh. Because you know the, the uh, position that would put me in... You know, we have language in the prospectus. Our colleague Sarah Fishko sits right next to us here at WNYC, and she overheard some of the themes we were discussing, We Are Pretty Loud, and offered us a piece she'd been working on about truth, lies, politics, and the movies. Before this moment, certain lies had a kind of seductive quality. For example, it's just 40 years since a film called Julia opened to great acclaim. It went on to sweep the Oscar race with 11 nominations and three wins. The film was based on Lillian Hellman's story of the same name from her memoir, Pentimento. It had been on every self-respecting bookshelf in 1973. Lily, you have to come to Vienna. It relates in detail the friendship between the author, played by Jane Fonda. As the years went on, she wrote angrily of the threat of fascism. And Julia, her very good friend. The movie version, with a fair amount of first-person narration, builds to a gripping scene in the 1930s. We would like you to carry for us $50,000. When the Hellman character, Lily, agrees to cross treacherous international borders. We think you are safe, but we cannot assure you. In order to smuggle money to her friend, who is by that time engaged in underground anti-Nazi activities. We can only do today what we can do today. That's Vanessa Redgrave as Julia. And today you did it for us. While it's a touching story about courage, friendship, politics, and conscience, it turned out a lot of it wasn't true. Certain real-life events Hellman wrote about seemed untraceable. Someone even came forward who strongly believed her own life was the model for the Julia character, even though she and Hellman had never met. Hellman never addressed that claim one way or the other. I have always wanted The Lillian Hellman saga of disputable facts became a preoccupation of several biographers and writers, notably the late writer-director Nora Ephron who zoomed into Hellman's long-standing feud with the author and critic Mary McCarthy. It was McCarthy who managed to make the most convincing and the most entertaining accusation against Hellman in 1980, a devastating and much-quoted remark, which Efron talked about later in an interview. Mary McCarthy famously went on the Dick Cavett show (laughs) and said of Lillian Hellman, every word she writes is a lie, including and and the, which (laughs) which is, of course, one of the great, witty, vicious remarks ever uttered, and for which Lillian Hellman sued her immediately for over Efron wrote a whole play, with songs, no less. Who are you, anyway? You're, what's her name, who made the mistake of choosing Lillian Hellman for an enemy? In every way, You're riffing off of the dislike of these women I for one sued. another. You sued me for the fun of it. I do like a good time. <laughs> Imaginary Friends, it was called. Fred Zinnemann, who directed the film Julia, said of Hellman, an extremely talented, brilliant writer, but she was a phony character, I'm sorry to say. My relations with her were very guarded and ended in pure hatred. After a while, nobody believed anything she said. She wrote a good deal about her decades-long relationship with Dashiell Hammett, which Gore Vidal famously defined with one quick question. Did anyone ever see them together? As for Julia, the self-serving story of commitment and risk is hard to look at now, knowing what we know. 
or don't know about the facts. And the film is even hard to find, an indication of its fall from grace. Welcome, John Travolta, right here. It's interesting to note that Redgrave, who played the title character, was handed her Best Supporting Actress Academy Award by John Travolta. And the winner is Vanessa Redgrave and Julia. Who had recently catapulted to overnight stardom in Saturday Night Fever, which is also celebrating its 40th anniversary right now, and which was also built around a deceptive bit of material. Namely, a New York Magazine article called Tribal Rights of the New Saturday Night, billed as a piece of journalism, documenting real Brooklyn characters living the disco life, which was later revealed to be pure fiction, not a real person in it. The author, Nick Cohn, later admitted, my story was a fraud. In that case, nobody seemed to mind, and the movie became a touchstone at a time when people actually wanted to leave Brooklyn, come to Manhattan, and never look back. Naturally, I might not be thinking about all this, except that we're all thinking about it. The framing of falsehoods as truth, and whatever consequences might result or might not. After all, our own commander-in-chief similarly left Queens for Manhattan, invented a narrative of his own successful deal-making, and convinced just enough people it was true. Of course, he's had many cultural models among the great truth-benders, and it used to be so amusing seeing them put one over on everybody. In movies like The Great Imposter, with Tony Curtis as Ferdinand Mara. Be yourself. Life is real. Life is earnest. Now, where's the fun in that? A real person, born in 1921, who masqueraded as a prison warden, a Trappist monk, a teacher, a doctor. He breezed into town and then breezed out, and people just shook their heads. What? He wasn't a real doctor? With a kind of jolly score by Henry Mancini. It was 1961, after all. It didn't seem that serious to be putting all your faith in a complete, if brilliant, liar. A bit darker is the film Catch Me If You Can, the real-life story of a charming, teenage, multi-million dollar check forger. Welcome to Miami Mutual Bank. How may I help you? I'd like to cash this check here, and then and I'd like to take you out for a steak dinner. Darker still is The Hoax. I'm working on the most important book of the 20th century. With a frustrated writer, Clifford Irving. It's unprecedented. Brags and exaggerates his way to a very public book deal on the basis of a rare interview with Howard Hughes, which, as it turns out, doesn't exist. Something in us once loved to see government agencies, publishers, powerful figures, and just plain folks fooled by these brazen fakers, though they all got caught. But these days, even a dagger from Mary McCarthy may not cut so deep. It's just descriptive. Everything he says is a lie, including and and the. Right. And in this plot, what happens next? But in a sweeping gesture, the film The Post, another story set in the 70s, a true and truly dramatic one, is realized for us now by Steven Spielberg who apparently dropped a couple of other projects to rush it onto screens for this holiday season. It's about the effort by a newspaper, as well as women and men of principle, to make public classified documents, the Pentagon Papers, which revealed long-standing government lies about the Vietnam War. To see a slick, mainstream movie, big stars, pulsing music, all helping us relive a moment of urgent cultural history, is like seeing some strange comet landing from a past time when truth, of all things, won out. It's Fishko Files. I'm Sarah Fishko.
That's it for this week's show. On the Media is produced by Alana Casanova-Burgess, Jesse Brenneman, Michael Lowinger, and Leah Fetter. We had more help from Monique Laborde, John Hanrahan, and Sarah Chadwick Gibson, and our show was edited by Brooke. Our technical director is Jennifer Munson. Our engineer this week was Sam Baer. Katya Rogers is our executive producer. On the Media is a production of WNYC Studios. I'm Brooke Gladstone. And I'm Bob Garfield. On the Media is supported by the Ford Foundation, the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, and the listeners of WNYC Radio.